When you rent videos during the week, you have five more nights to catch up on all the movies you might have missed. Isn't that a nice reward for working like a dog? I've thought of something. Why don't we rent a video tonight? Yeah, can we please? On a weeknight? Yeah, come on, Mom. It's okay. Sure. Come on. Let's throw caution to the wind. Your video store carries a wide selection of films. Don't hesitate to ask your video retailer for suggestions. In addition to the movies you already know, he can recommend many lesser-known films you're bound to enjoy. Hello, divers. Coming to you from Studio D, this is the Deep Dive Microcast. I'm Tom Feeney, raconteur, person of disinterest, and writer for Wang's Chop Movie Magazine. This is a companion series of the Deep Dive Podcast where myself and my co-host Manda look at the lesser-known, maybe obscure, and perhaps forgotten offerings available on streaming media services. This episode will return to the days when renting a movie meant taking a short drive to your local video store, perusing the numerous shelves of tapes or discs. More likely than not, that store was a blockbuster video. During the 1990s, the company grew to become the dominant player in the video cassette and later DVD rental industry. And now, there's only one left. What happened? Well, the answer may be more complicated than you think. The Deep Dive Microcast presents a brief history of Blockbuster Video. Now, before we get to Blockbuster itself, it pays to rewind a bit further and go back to the beginning. days of home video, your only option was to purchase the tapes, not rent them. Didn't matter if they were VHS or their rival format, Betamax, but that's another show. Those tapes were expensive, really expensive. Early movies on pre-recorded VHS and beta tapes sold for around $70 each back in the late 1970s, and that's about $300 adjusted for 2021. The first VCRs, or video cassette recorders, were anywhere from five to 10,000 in today's dollars. But people were using them to tape TV shows while they were not at home. Owning movies on tape was aimed squarely at film collectors, not necessarily the general public. In the fall of 1977, the same year audiences turned out in droves to see a little movie about a tiny rebellion fighting against an evil galactic empire, a different kind of rebellion was taking place. A Los Angeles man named George Atkinson was making a decent living renting out movies. Not on tape, though. Actual movies. On film. Atkinson would rent out projectors and 8mm films to hotels or pizza parlors or parties where people wanted to show a movie. But when movies started coming out on videocassette, Atkinson saw an opportunity. He could buy multiple copies of each movie and rent them out to VCR owners. That led to the opening of the first video rental store in December of 1977, The Video Station, located in downtown Los Angeles. The idea caught on quickly, and by the mid-1980s, 
there were around 15,000 dedicated video rental stores, many of them mom-and-pop stores. It seemed like a good investment, a you know, cash register, a computer to track rentals, and a lot of shelf space, and you were in business. And for a while, business was good. In fact, by 1987, revenue from home video rentals surpassed that of theatrical releases. But as history has shown, any successful small business venture is vulnerable. Over the years, how many small businesses were forced to close after a megamart moved into town? So it was only a matter of time before chain stores became the norm and started putting those small neighborhood video rental outlets out of business. One of the first major chains to emerge was called West Coast Video and was started in 1983, oddly, on the East Coast. More specifically, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Imagine that you hold the exclusive patent on the video cassette. How much do you think you'd be worth today? The birth of the video cassette changed the lifestyle of millions and made some people fabulously wealthy. And it's led directly to the huge success of this. One of the largest, most dynamic video store chains in the country, West Coast Video. America's favorite video store with over 600 stores, many of them franchised. West Coast Video can help make you successful in this business. And if you qualify, we're willing to share our formula with you. Start building your future now. No one knows how to help you do that better than West Coast Video. Within five years, West Coast Video had over 600 stores, making it the largest video store chain during that time. That claim to fame would not last long. The company that would go on to dominate the video rental industry had already begun its march to supremacy. It was begun by a man named David Cook. Cook was in the oil and gas industry, sort of. He supplied software for computers used in oil and gas production. Now, tired of that business, his wife Sandy encouraged him to get into the nascent video rental business. On October 19, 1985, the first blockbuster video opened in Dallas, Texas. Cook had experience in database management, so he was able to innovate when it came to creating software to keep track of customers, their preferences, and more importantly, those lucrative late fees. Potential franchisees were impressed with Cook's rental system and came calling. Cook was even able to tailor a store's inventory to better reflect the taste of that store's clientele. That innovation was key in Blockbuster's success succeeded did. By 1993, Blockbuster had opened nearly 4,000 stores around the country. Now, while there were still plenty of small independent stores at the time, people flocked to the newer stores. The design language of the stores was bright, clean, and well-organized, not to mention family-friendly. No embarrassing adult sections hidden behind red curtains. The mom-and-pop stores operated at the whims and tastes of the owners and couldn't compete with Blockbuster's sheer buying power when it came to getting new releases on their shelves. The company expanded very quickly during the 1990s and went on a spending spree, buying up many smaller video store chains and converting them to Blockbuster stores. There was also talk of a Blockbuster theme park. Yes, that's right, theme park. More on that after this important message. Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? 
right over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout, 24-hour quick drop return, open late every night. Well, the perfect video store. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. Is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Blockbuster Video. Wow, what a difference. By 1994, control of Blockbuster had shifted to a man named Wayne Heisinger. He was one of Southern Florida's wealthiest and most powerful businessmen, having founded several companies, including AutoNation, and owning several major league sports franchises. Heisinger felt the Blockbuster brand was strong enough to carry over into other forms of entertainment. So he began buying up land in Miami, $30 million of land. On that land would be a massive theme park and entertainment complex, Blockbuster Park. Hotels, restaurants, retail stores, and even a movie studio were to be part of this venture. Now, some in Miami were resistant to the idea, but most embraced it. Probably because decades earlier, the local government shut down plans for another proposed theme park. That company would instead go further south to Orlando and build Walt Disney World. Everything was a go for the billion-dollar blockbuster park, but it never happened. Why? Heisinger saw the writing on the wall. The expansion of cable television and the new technology of video on demand meant that the video rental business may have hit its peak. So he cashed out. And in 1994, Blockbuster was purchased by mega media conglomerate Viacom for the low, low price of $8.4 billion. That sale effectively killed the Blockbuster Park project. It also led to the massive expansion of the Blockbuster brand that would continue into the 2000s. The rental stores began carrying DVDs, which were welcomed by Blockbuster. DVDs were of higher quality, didn't need rewinding, and took up less shelf space. The stores also started renting video games, much to the dismay of gaming giant Nintendo, which sued Blockbuster and lost. Blockbuster's dominance in video rentals would continue for a while longer. By 2004, they had 9,000 stores worldwide. But behind the scenes, things were not going so well. Blockbuster was losing money. They had tried to update their business model by starting their own internet service and eliminating late fees, but things were looking bleak. Perhaps the biggest mistake the company made during that time was ignoring an up-and-coming rival, a young internet startup that would ultimately become a dominant force in the entertainment industry. Netflix got its start not long after the internet exploded in popularity. The story goes that Netflix founder Reed Hastings got a huge bill from Blockbuster for late fees. So he had the notion of renting movies by mail. It took a few years to get rolling, but by the year 2000, Netflix had nearly 300,000 subscribers. And Hastings was ready to sell the business and move on. Blockbuster seemed like the logical choice to buy Netflix. Seemed like a no-brainer. Blockbuster would instantly gain a new source of revenue that didn't include opening any new stores. The online infrastructure was in place and the business model was proven. 
the price was right too. Hastings was asking for a $50 million buyout. Now at the time, Blockbuster was valued at 100 times more. It would have been a relatively painless acquisition. Blockbuster CEO John Antioco said no. It would be a mistake he would come to regret. Revenues continued to decline during the 2000s. Blockbuster tried a hostile takeover of rival Hollywood video, and they failed. In 2008, the company tried to acquire dying electronics retailer Circuit City. Guess how that went? Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy in 2010. The past decade saw the company's number of stores dwindling as more and more homes got access to high-speed internet and with it, access to new video streaming services like Hulu, YouTube, and of course, Netflix. In the end, Blockbuster was a victim of corporate hubris with its lack of forward thinking. The company wasn't nimble enough to adapt to the rapidly changing landscape of media technology and found itself left behind. As of this recording, there is only one Blockbuster left in Bend, Oregon. In a truly stunning example of irony, a new documentary about that one final location will be available to watch on Netflix. The last Blockbuster, premiering on Netflix March 15th, is a nostalgic love letter to the days of renting VHS tapes off the shelf, looking through aisles and aisles of titles, trying to find something new, or looking for an old favorite to pop into the VCR. The film features interviews with celebrities, filmmakers, and fans reminiscing about those halcyon days of home video. It also looks at the struggles of the last Blockbuster's owners trying to stay afloat and keep the legacy of Blockbuster alive. While the former giant has become more of a punchline these days and a tangible example of impermanence, people have a genuine fondness for the days when you could drive to your nearest Blockbuster, pull a title off the shelf, and ask the stranger next to you, have you seen this? Is it any good? It's a far cry from the artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that try to predict what you like. So it's no wonder why VHS tapes are making something of a comeback, just like vinyl records have. There's something about the tactile experience of holding a movie in your hand that streaming just can't replace. And although it doesn't seem like video rental stores will be returning anytime soon, that shared experience, for those of us old enough to remember, was totally worth the late fees. Thanks for listening. If this is the first time you've heard this podcast, check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss a single one. And we would really like to hear from you. Drop us a line at the deep dive podcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook Instagram, or Twitter feeds. You can find links to those on our website, thedeepdivepodcast.com. All clips used in the Deep Dive Microcast are meant for educational purposes only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. The Deep Dive Lounge theme was arranged and performed by Robert Acorn, based on the original composition by Ryan Blaney. The Deep Dive Microcast is a production of Automaton Studios.